The power outage two weeks ago, uh, when church was canceled, and when our own household was without power for three days, uh, taught us some important lessons, I think. It's a humbling experience. But among other things, it caused me to revise what I had planned for this week. Um, after spending about a thousand hours or so writing the sermon for July 1st, if you think I'm going to throw it out and not use it, you're crazy. So you're going to hear large portions of it anyway, woven in, as it were, with what I intended to do today. Michael Doral, the somewhat famous and controversial church management consultant that um, Ann Ford referenced several weeks ago, says in another book of his called The Church We Yearn For, that I've already mentioned, that searching for and then calling a new minister can be a revolutionary experience for a congregation, a revolutionary experience. He asserts that it is always a time of transition. That's a given. The deeper and more important question, however, is whether it will also be a time of transformation. Ann Ford told of her trip to her doctor cardiologist who told her that her heart is boring. That was the good news. It's good thing to have a boring heart, but that she needed to get off her butt and get more exercise. Then Anne said to all of us, perhaps we need to get off our collective butts and put our principles into action. And Anne went on again to quote Doral. She said that he claims that people today are seeking a church that will challenge their self-centeredness and offer an alternative to consumer-oriented society and its attendant shallowness. Now the interesting thing is that Anne got an ovation at the end of that sermon. And frankly, Anne, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> I, I really am. Now, I don't know if that applause was because we really intend to take to heart what Anne said, namely getting off our butts, or whether we just thought she was very entertaining. <laughs> I assume, and I'm going to proceed upon the assumption that the former is the real truth. I'll give you all the benefit of the doubt. Our new minister is now here. Carl and Megan are ensconced in Frederick in the Ballinger Creek area, along with their menagerie of animals. And we will officially, as Dick indicated, welcome them next Sunday. But I want to speak some about how Carl got here and about the transformation and the hope that I think is present that I hope will flourish in the months and the years ahead. 
One of the things that the search committee did and worked very diligently on before we interviewed any candidates at all was the development and the compilation of what is called the congregational record. I know that some of you are familiar with that. I suspect that many of you are not. The record, it's called the record, is an attempt by the search committee to accurately put into words the story of this congregation. So if you were to tell that story, what, what would you say? There would be, I'm sure, differences of opinion, just as there were differences of opinion on the search committee. But in the end, we came up with a total document that we could at least live with somewhat comfortably, even if, it was, even if there was not always rousing and celebratory unanimity. Bill Butler, the self-described grumpy old man on the committee, was our gravitas. That has something to do with gravy that your grandmother made that had lumps in it. Bill was our gravitas, often bringing yours truly back down to earth. One of the sections of the record addresses a very tough issue. It asks the question, does the congregation have a mission? Not a mission statement. We have a mission statement. I think it's fairly bland and needs to be revised. But nevertheless, we have a mission statement. But the question really asks, is there a glowing coal at its center? Is there a glowing coal at our center? Or a burning coal? And if so, what is it? So this is what the record says in answer to that question. This is what all of the candidates read, including Carl. To the best of my knowledge, none were put off by what we said. Indeed, some were quite intrigued by the answer. So here it is. This is somewhat difficult to identify because it may be a stretch to suggest that there is any burning coal. There are several sparks, however, that certainly have the potential of becoming glowing coals, but bursting into open flame, perhaps even ablaze. Too often, UUCF has aimed too low conforming to the conventional paradigms of wisdom and always avoiding risk. If, however, the mindsets of scarcity, caution, fear, and insecurity can be overcome, a transformation might occur. And perceptions of plenty, boldness, creativity, imagination, hopefulness, and adventure will become the order of the day to achieve an expanded vision of what it means to serve the human community. Now I'll get back to the rest of the quote in a moment, but I want to pause to unpack that part for a moment. Mindsets of scarcity and caution, fear and insecurity come when the territory is uncertain. Our nation right now and major parts of Europe are engaged in a paradigm of austerity and I think unfortunately this congregation got caught up in part of that through the years. 
Since the time that John Morehouse left six years ago, there has been an observable drift, and I think that's putting it mildly. Yet at the same time, and this is much more important, there has been an observable yearning for something new and exciting and challenging. And yet that was always offset by the fear that we might not be able to afford a full-time minister. And this feeling seemed to be pervasive at certain points. Until, that is, we managed to blow the lid off the top of the special campaign to get a full-time minister. And you see, yes, amen. And you see, my friends, we played a trick on ourselves, didn't we? We played a trick on ourselves. Because what we did was to, to throw caution to the wind, and we said, when the bar is set high and the expectations are clear, we can do it. We can do it. And not only can we do it, we can more than do it. John Menke said he would eat crow if we did it. So, John Menke, eat crow. There he is, and he's eating right now. <laughs> Tasty. <laughs> over and over again. I'll leave you alone after this. Unitarians, well, they're not the only ones, but Unitarians have for too long had only modest expectations of themselves and their congregations. And I think this congregation is no different. And I, for one, hope to change that. Our whole concept of commitment has too often required very little effort and certainly very little sacrifice. In spite of our lofty seven principles, we treat membership, and I'm going to exaggerate here some, but bear with me, we treat membership pretty much like a dating game. And we say to folks, in effect, well, it's really not like getting married, but if you attend once in a while, make a pledge of some sort, but not too much, we can kind of live together for a while. We know that when it comes to choosing a congregation, there are many choices, and we do much appreciate you choosing us, at least for the time being, Today, anyway, and we hope to see you another time, or two, or three. One commentator has likened all of this to the familiar pitch that you hear sometimes when you fly somewhere. Welcome aboard to United. We know you have many choices, so thank you for flying United today. We take great pleasure in serving you, and if in the future you wish to travel by plane, we hope you will choose United once more. Go through that pitch and simply substitute UUCF for the name of the airline. The same commentator suggests that just once the script might read differently. What if what if we warned people against joining a congregation because turbulence in the pews 
is not occasional and unexpected, but is routine. What if more sermons could move beyond what pilots call light chop, and preachers would fly people right into the storm instead of around it in search of smooth air? What if those oxygen masks dropped down almost every Sunday, and people had to grab them, gasping, instead of hearing the standard rhetorical charade that advises otherwise terrified people to continue breathing normally. What if? Can't there at least be a frequent recognition of the salient moral issues of the 21st century, which I think are more stark now and more daunting than they have ever been? Indeed, life on our planet is at stake, and on a globe that is racked with war and mendacity and political corruption and ineptitude, not to mention the prevalence of a message of escape that comes from most religious quarters, the need for human justice is overwhelming. And I think it's about time that we got with it. Dick Roblin had a favorite question that he liked to ask all of the candidates that we interviewed. He said there are two types of sermons, those that afflict the comfortable and those that comfort the afflicted. What type do you preach, he asked. And what do you think of that kind of analysis? Well, all, all of the candidates, of course, said, well, I, I preach both sermons. And I suppose that was the answer that we were looking for. And yet, I would submit that we generally stay away from and even dislike sermons that afflict us too much. As Michael Doral says, there are a lot of Unitarians who are liberal fundamentalists. They are just as rigid and passionate as right-wing evangelicals, and they are absolutely sure that they have all of the answers, never mind what the facts are. There is a lot of anti-this and a lot of anti-that based on totally ignorant assumptions and perceptions. They don't like to be disturbed too much, and if they are, they'll crucify the preacher. So C. Raven has offered to hold the door open after the service so I can run and escape before you catch me. <laughs> I guess part of the point in walking us through some of this is to suggest that it is not an easy task to identify those burning coals that are at the core of our congregation, let alone fan that fire to make a blaze. But we identified three, and they serve only as a jumping off point. There are others that you might rather choose. That's okay. We need lots of burning coals. Our, one, our church building and property can be spectacular, serving the ideals of energy self-sufficiency and environmental harmony. The Green Sanctuary Program and the use of our church acreage 
hold possibilities yet unimagined, some even explosive in their impact, where people might learn the very story of the universe, some of its rich meaning, as well as ways to live and love. John Morehouse suggested last Sunday, and Ann Ford also mentioned this several weeks ago, that building this building was a very controversial act. It was also very expensive. And there's a large mortgage. And that's tough. But the point is, we have it now. We can't let it rot to pieces. But I think the more fundamental question is this. Can it be more than just a place to gather and meet and have fellowship with one another? Is there somehow inherent in this place a wider opportunity for broad service to the region, particularly the city of Frederick? Does this place and does this property allow us the opportunity to reduce our carbon imprint upon the planet. Chris Hayes, commentator for MSNBC, talks intelligently about this latter issue of carbon emissions and says that this issue is as significant now as the onset of the Industrial Revolution and the Digital Age in its scale and its scope. He says this can either be terrifying or thrilling the terrifying part is easy to understand. I think we got a good dose of that two weeks ago with the power outage. The thrilling part has to do with human ingenuity and what we can do about this issue. Can we begin to think of this space and this property in those kinds of terms? Number two on our list. The church has many professional quality musicians whose talents are underutilized. There are people waiting to be challenged to learn to participate in alternative forms of worship and special programs that are filled with excitement and action. Danielle Grace, one of those musicians extraordinaire, gave me a t-shirt with a quote on it from Carl Sandburg, who was a Unitarian Universalist. And this is what the quote says. Nothing happens unless first we dream. Well, my friends, this is the time for dreaming, the time for making it happen. The third area is that of social action including community and world outreach, which has achieved some notable things with rather low levels of participation from this congregation. Although people consistently indicate great interest in translating the causes into action, it has been a difficult haul. The seeds are present, however, in need and in need of nourishment and care. People are strongly united in their desire to proceed to full-time ministry that will help enable nascent, nascent visions to become profound realities. As you know, one of the hot-button issues to come out of General Assembly last year and this year 
is the issue of immigration reform. Carl, I happen to know, will be addressing that issue very early on in his ministry. But we need to be on the map in significant ways and in significant numbers if we are to be a flagship, a flagship, a flagship congregation. Many issues are intertwined with what are called culture wars. And as you know, there's a terrible cast of characters from Rush Limbaugh and Rand Paul to some Roman Catholic bishops. But what we have not grasped very much is that all of the issues that swirl around in our midst are at root about economic justice. A war is being waged in our world, a continuing war, I think, but it is particularly virulent right now in our own land against the poor. And we need to understand how it works. We've got to know the difference between supply-side economics and Keynesian uh, economics, because it has to do with how the pie gets sliced. Will the rich get the bigger slice of the pie with whipped cream on it, and the poor the end of the crust, or what's left of the crust? Will corporations continue to flourish because they are now people, and our neighbors languish because they have no jobs? The ones we are supposed to love the most including exploited immigrants, suffer the most. Even children with infected teeth die in this country because they are denied treatment. Can we allow this in the richest nation on this planet? So we move into a new ministry. We seek, as John Morehouse said, to move into Oz, that place of change, that place of desire, that place of dreams, that place of hope. We begin a new ministry with Dr. J. Carl Gregg. He will not walk on water, as I have often suggested. Though he is brilliant, he comes to us with integrity, transparency, and passion to help us make this world a better place. He comes to travel with us in the hopes that our dreams can become reality. And those hopes must not be confused with ignorant optimism. The dire conditions of our world will bring us down to earth very, very fast if we are Pollyannish about all of this. But as the great 20th century theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, it is just because we cannot know whether humanity is going to survive or not that we have to act today as if the future of the whole of humanity depended upon us. We are not expected to do it all, even if that were possible. But the fire of commitment, the fire of commitment, which we are now called upon to embrace, bids us use our minds and our hearts in a passionate way, not as if we were flying united, but as if we were hungry for justice, as if we are willing to take our dreams and soar with them in a prophetic voice 
for real compassion in our world, where we invite others to be witnesses with us from near and far to join us in our journey to make ourselves and others free at last. So now may the fire of commitment burn brighter as we journey on. So may it be. Amen.